At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? But I want to start this morning by engaging your imagination. Will you allow me to do that? All right. Well, imagine that you are on a job interview. And it's a dream job for you. It's the role you've always wanted. You've got the expertise. You've got the talent. You've got the skill. You've got all the ability. And so when it comes to the interview, I'll just ask you this. What would be the focus of your comments? How would you describe yourself? Having trouble? Well, let me give you some examples. Maybe you're interviewing to be a school principal. You tell yourself and you tell the person interviewing you, I've got the certification. I've got the education. I've got all the knowledge of different types of curriculum. I know how to use them in a classroom. I know how to guide other teachers in doing so as well. I'm a very strong communicator. That doesn't fit you? Okay, well, let's try something else. Maybe you're an entrepreneur. Try to start your own business. You're interviewing before potential investors. And you would say, hey, I've got all of the marketing skills that I need. I know all about sales techniques. And I've got a proven track record that lies behind me. Maybe you're interviewing for a CEO or a member of a board of directors. And you'd say, I've got strong experience. I've got a formal education. I've got all the management skills. I've got a wide range of talent. See, when it comes to positions of leadership, character, I think, often takes a back seat. Right? Not always, but most of the time, it's talent over character. We fixate on skills and abilities and talents to do a job rather than who we are. We describe ourselves more by what we do than who we are. Right? Hello, my name's Kevin. I'm a pastor. What do you do? Gotcha. Right? Like this, we all do this. We fixate on skills and abilities, what we do rather than who we are. And I just want to flex like just kind of a leadership angle to you right now. Why do people continually flock to talent without any thought given to character? And then when disaster comes, we act so surprised. Don't misunderstand Skills and talents and abilities, they're all very important. They're all God-given, but they're all behind character and importance. I'm going to throw a challenge your way and just say this to you. The Holy Spirit consistently works through character more than talent. I firmly believe that, and I challenge you to believe that as well. And when it comes to leadership in the church, any church, that's right, any church that has a leadership structure that is based wholly Heavily on talent will come to ruin. Just consider all of the the different failures that we've seen in recent years in leadership in the church, but also in culture. And what you see is the compromise of character. And when we hear character deficiencies in leaders and stories of those things, it's typically a story of sexual sin. It's typically a story of sexual immorality. And those are definitely included 
But I would just ask, what about ego? What about narcissism? What about insubordination? What about gossip and slander? Even relational immaturity. All of those matter. All of those are devastating. All of the compromising character that we see in positions of leadership, I think it bubbles a question to the surface. And that question is, what's the standard for positions of leadership? What's the standard for people who have leadership? Is there a standard at all? Well, I've got good news for you. There is an answer, and God has it in his word. But it's another hard text this morning. It's going to take some humility on our part to get through it. But God is faithful. I believe that, and he has wisdom for us. So before we open his word, let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are full of love and full of grace. Father, our character matters to you. And God, I find myself trying so hard sometimes to fix it, to change it in my own strength. And the change I see from my own strength, God, is temporary. And it's insufficient. What I need, what we need as people, we can't get by ourselves. To have the kind of character that really honors you, Father, and points people to you, we need to look to Jesus. He's our everything. He's our Savior and our Lord. Everything we need is in the person of Christ. So God, help us now as we turn to your word. Help us now as we open your word and clear any hindrance from us hearing your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing our series that we've called Church, Why Bother? And we've now arrived at the halfway point. We're five weeks in. We've got five weeks left after today. And we're in this book called 1 Timothy, which is actually a personal letter written by the Apostle Paul to his kind of protege or his true child in the faith as he refers to him. And he's giving him directions how to lead the church. He's, Timothy is in Ephesus, and Paul has charged him to remain there and lead that church. And so we've seen Paul give Timothy instructions about doctrine, about the gospel, about what worship settings should look like. We also saw last week that he instructed Timothy on how men and women should be known and what they should be known for. And today, Paul actually turns to what qualifies leaders in the church. So grab your Bible or your device, or however you read God's word, and let's meet together in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. If you do not have a Bible, please let us know. Even see the Welcome Center on your way out. We'd love to put a Bible in your hand. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become 
puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve, as, serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So what we just read here is Paul outlining the two specific leadership roles in the New Testament, that of elders and that of deacons. But I hope you notice that Paul's focus is not on talent. See, Paul doesn't give Timothy what you and I might think of as a job description, right, with a list of tasks, a list of responsibilities on it. Rather, he focuses on the people that they are. Paul says to Timothy, hey, look for people whose character is shaped by the gospel. And like last week, this text is surrounded by some debate. The debate centers around whether women can serve in either of these roles. And like last week, I want to charge you that we have to see these words through the lens of the person and work of Jesus Christ and their original context. Humility must be our posture here. So I want to say a few things about these two different roles. First, elders, which is Paul's focus in verses 1 to 7. Across the New Testament... The terms overseer and elder and pastors are really used interchangeably to refer to the same role. And numerous commentaries and books back that up. That's not my take. That's hundreds of years of scholarship. An elder, an overseer, pastor, they exercise leadership in the church through teaching, leading, praying, and shepherding God's people. But also in the New Testament, local churches have multiple elders who lead together. In other words... Local churches have elders, not an elder. That doesn't mean that all elders function the same. It doesn't mean they're all doing the same thing. It just means that there's not only one of them. Second, deacons and deaconesses. You might want to pump the brakes on me and say, hey, I don't see the word deaconesses in there. You're right, it's not there. And this is where some of the debate is, right? The word for wives and the word for women is the same in the Greek. So in verse 11, there's a debate on who Paul is referring to. And as you know, a couple weeks ago, we brought up several godly, faithful women in this church who serve as deaconesses, and we are better for it. Right? That is what we believe as a church. And you can even see this bear out in some of the translations of the Bible that you may read in that verse. But the word literally means a servant. But it's so much more than that. Deacon and deaconesses, yes, they serve but it's more than that. In his book on deacons, Matt Smithhurst says this of deacons. Listen to this. Deacons were held in a place of honor in Christianity's earliest centuries, assisting in liturgical functions and administering the benevolent and charitable activities of the church. So if I could just sum this up, elders, they attend to the spiritual needs of the church, while deacons attend to the practical needs of the church. 
But again, notice the key difference between the two roles, between elders and deacons, teaching and exercising authority. We pointed this out last week. And Paul says the role of elder is specifically for not just men, qualified men. And remember, this isn't about a lack of gifting for women. This is not about inferiority in women or superiority for men. Remember the verses that led right into the passage we just read, the end of chapter 2. Paul points to creation for his reasoning. Not something about men, not something about women, but about creation. And sin in the garden, sin by Adam and Eve, doesn't cause God to change his plan. Doesn't cause God to kind of ditch his will. He's got to come up with something else. But sin does cause and bring difficulty for us, for men and women. There's hardship and pain in relationship because of us, because of our lack of character. But let us remember that Jesus has redeemed us. Jesus has reversed the curse from the fall. Men and women have freedom in Christ because of his grace. So that's just a quick look at the roles. We could go on for elders and deacons, but I want to I focus on Paul's focus. Right? Paul focuses on the character required for both. And what that shows us is that the church is cared for by qualified and faithful leaders. Qualified and faithful leaders. So what does a leader in the church look like? What is their character look like? I want to answer that question by pulling out four things from our text today. The first is church leaders have control over their appetites. Control over their appetites. Look back at verses 1 to 3 and 8 and 9. Paul starts with qualities here that I love this. John Stott, a theologian, he describes these things that Paul focuses on as areas of self-mastery. Right? So this is not about perfection. Don't, don't think it's about perfection, but rather that a person, a leader in the church, they're actively crucifying the desires of their flesh. They're actively crucifying those desires. Right? And submitting to the will, submitting our will, excuse me, to the lordship of Christ is something that all of us in the church need to embrace. That's something that we all need to do. Paul's focus here is that that must be understood in a leader. He says for men who are elders or deacons, he says that they must be a one-woman man. They must be faithful, he says. In other words, men who are leaders in the church must have mastery over their sexual appetites. And sadly, I don't know about you, but in my mind right now, I can think of many men who have not. Sadly, many men have failed here, specifically here. And many women have been abused in the process. Let me just take a page from Nehemiah and Daniel and apologize. It's sin. And I'm terribly sorry that you may have suffered at the hands of a pastor, a priest, or a leader in the church. We shouldn't be afraid, nor should we shy away in any way from calling it sin. We should recognize the pain and the suffering that women have endured over terrible leadership from men. Paul's view of appetite includes more than sexual appetite, namely alcohol and money. And with alcohol, it's not a hard no. He's not just calling us to a full stop 
on wine or beer or whatever would fall into that. It's a no to excess. It's a no to intoxication. And likewise for money, it's not a no to having money altogether. It's not a no for even having a lot of money. Notice what he says in verse 3. Not a lover of money. Not greedy for dishonest gain. In verse 8. So church leaders, they shouldn't be motivated by money. That's not what should get them up in the morning. They shouldn't have their identity placed in money. Everything revolves around it, their value, their worth. They shouldn't chase after money, whether dishonestly or otherwise. That shouldn't be their objective in life. And this all reminds me of Jesus. Jesus had mastery over his appetite. We see this all throughout his life, especially in his temptation and in the garden where he prayed, not as I will, but as you will, Father. That's the way he prayed because doing his Father's will was his greatest delight. That's who Jesus was. That was what his character was all about. See, when a person lives under the lordship of Jesus, they have control over their appetites. And let's be honest, no leader does this perfectly. No leader does this flawlessly. But by God's grace, they've set an example for others. Second, church leaders have grace in their relationships. Look back at verses 2 and 3 and 11. Verse 2, Paul uses this word hospitable. That's what church leaders must be. This isn't merely just being nice. Oh, that's a nice person. That's not what he's saying. I love the word he uses here for this. Listen to this. It literally means a lover of strangers. So powerful. Church leaders don't operate in cliques. They don't have their people and everybody else just gets a big hand. He shoves them off as irrelevant. They're inviting. They open themselves to others. They open their lives to others. They want to welcome people into their life. That's what hospitality hospitality means. They want to connect with people for their good. Verse 3, he says it another way. He says, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. Church leaders aren't walking around on a hair trigger, waiting to just erupt on anybody and everybody for whatever reason they deem fit. That's not, they're not just a, without a fuse. Look at verse 11, 11, Paul also says, leaders are not slanderers. I just want to bring some depth here. This, is, this word for slandering that Paul uses is where we get our word for diabolical. And there's some gravity here that we need to grasp. We need to kind of say whoa for a second here. Right? Speaking falsely about someone else destroys relationships. It leaves them in just utter ruin. This is the exact opposite of grace. Exact opposite of grace. And mind you, God's grace is the very thing, the very thing that has restored the most important relationship you and I could ever hope to have with our Father in heaven through the blood of Jesus. It was a podcast that was produced recently by Christianity Today. Uh, It was called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Anybody familiar with it? Two, three, wow. Okay, Uh, highly recommend, put that on your podcast list. Um, 
It's a story of a megachurch called Mars Hill, no surprise there, but in Seattle, which rose to prominence in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it's a story of many, many unhealthy things that happened in the life of that church, not the least of which was a complete lack of grace in relationships involving leaders. And it's truly staggering. There's so much pain and so much brokenness as a result of abuse in leadership. It's truly staggering. But in one of the episodes, there's a quote from a pastor and author by the name of Paul David Tripp. He was interviewed in one of the episodes, and he was close to it through relationships. He knew people in the church and the many campuses that they had. And I wrote this quote down because it, just, it was just so powerful to me at the time I heard it. He says this, Any church leadership culture not shaped by the grace it teaches and believes is not biblical nor of God. And I remember when I heard that, it just chills went down my spine for the gravity that that brings. See, the lives of everyone in the church, but especially leaders in the church, should demonstrate the relational grace of Jesus. And yet loving other people is hard, isn't it? It's hard. Loving me is hard. Just ask my wife and kids. You have no idea. God calls us all, though, and especially leaders, to live lives of love and grace towards other people. Third, church leaders have leadership in their home. Leadership in their home. Throughout the New Testament, the church is compared to a home. It's compared to that intimate reality of a home. Look no further than verse 15 in the chapter we're reading today, the household of God, which Paul writes, which is the church of the living God. And one of our values as a church is we are family, that there is something far more significant than our biological relationships because of birth. We have relationships here in the church. We are brothers and sisters. And Paul connects the leadership in the home to leadership in the church. And when I read this, I read the word manage, I admit that can sound a little bit cold, a little bit like it's not relationship at all, not relational in its meaning. But this word literally means guiding, coming alongside and aiding someone, giving them direction. So there's a, a really an intimacy, intimacy here, an intimate closeness and proximity that a parent is to have with their child. And Paul connects that idea, that idea of managing and guiding and aiding and giving direction with the submissiveness of children. So this isn't about perfect obedience, okay, parents? So just let that pressure just melt off of your shoulders, okay? We're not looking for perfect obedience. But it is about a general spirit of submission and acceptance of parental leadership. And Paul's saying if it's not happening in the home, you're not qualified to lead in the church. First things first. To lead in the church, one must first lead in the home. You know, I remember when I first taught my sons how to use tools when they were young, especially power tools. Um, at the start, I didn't just toss them a drill and say, have at it. Figure it out on yourself. Just don't hurt yourself. No. We would have been quickly in the urgent care or emergency room, and I would have had a ton more on my honey-do list to do, to fix. I started by giving them a nail already in a piece of board, right, already in a piece of lumber, and they would hammer it with my hand on the hammer. And as they progressed, I slowly took my hand off of the tool. 
right? Then they progressed and they moved on and moved up to other things, to screwdrivers and cordless drills and saws and you name it. See, Paul's getting at a progression here. He's getting at a progression through intimate relationship, through aiding and guiding and giving direction that happens in a husband or a wife's home, in in the mom and dad's home. And it's really, really important to God. He's watching it. Not so he can burden you with, with judgment, but he cares about what's happening there. He's asking you, how do you live with those I've given to you? How do you lead those I've put under your care? We guide and direct and lead our children God has given us relationally in love. So is the person right for leadership in the church? Paul says the answer in part lies in the home. Well, finally, church leaders have maturity in the faith. Look at back at verses 6 and 7 and 10 and even 13. In the Old Testament and even the New Testament, the elder or an elder was usually an older man, right? Usually a person of advanced age. And it's pretty common to come into a church and expect an elder or leaders in the church to be older. With age does come experience that affords wisdom and knowledge that does seem more profitable than leadership in a life that doesn't have those things. Not always. Not always, Paul says. Here, he's actually talking about spiritual maturity. Right? Look back. Also for deacons, he says that they should be tested in verse 10. Tested first, then let them lead as deacons or serve as deacons. So, a leader should not be a new believer. How long do we wait then? How long is sufficient? Well, we don't have a time. Paul doesn't give us anything concrete on time. But he does say it's an amount of time that demonstrates character inside the church, but also outside the church. See, the hurting world needs to see the character of Christ in all of us, and especially our leaders. It's true for both elders and deacons. See, leadership in the church should not be rushed. There's no cliff notes, there's no fast track, nor should there be. The danger is that it could lead to personal ruin. And it often does when the person doesn't have the maturity to handle it. Humility is absolutely required. See, because a humble person has the maturity to realize that the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you gladly give up to his will. The more you gladly give up to his direction. See, the more you know him, the more you know you need him. For sure. Let me put it to you this way. If Jesus had all of the reason and every reason to be conceited and wasn't, what does that say to you? How does that speak to you about leadership in the church? See, the church needs leaders. We need leaders who have mastery over themselves, over their homes, over their relationships. We need leaders who know God's word and teach it faithfully and passionately. We need leaders who serve passionately and desire the good of others before their own. So how do we get such leaders? We pray. That's exactly how Paul started his specific instructions to the church. Pray, Timothy. Pray for all people. 
So I charge you to pray for your leaders in the church that they would continue in Christ-like character, that they would persevere in the faith and flourish in what God's called them to do. Pray that God would raise up leaders in the church who would be devoted to Christ and desire to grow in wisdom and knowledge of God first and foremost. But also pray for yourself. Pray for yourself and ask God what he might want you to do, how he might want you to lead. And then ask him for the work in your soul that's needed because he's faithful. He's faithful to make it true of you. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.